And the rest of us, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be inching our way along verses 10 through 13 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. We ended last week in verses 8 and 9, which say, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord, I ask that as we come before you this morning, as we uh, enter into your word, that you would open the mind's eye, that we'd be able to grasp these things, that um, our hearts would be able to receive your word, that we wouldn't have hardened hearts this morning, God. Be, the ground would be soft, would be prepared by your spirit, that your word would have its effect on our lives. Help us for this next few minutes, Lord, that we would just focus and it would change us eternally, Lord. We want to thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who is at work right now, knows every single circumstance, every single possibility, everything that's going on in our hearts and our lives. And, and, and Father, I just pray that you dynamically just work in our hearts this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you're now familiar with, um, Peter is writing to Christians who have been going through very serious trials. Anybody going through various serious trials? A couple of us? And it's Peter's aim in his opening remarks of this book to these scattered Christians to remind them of a great salvation, the great salvation that they have through faith in Jesus Christ. The word salvation, it means deliverance. God is a great deliverance. And when a person is suffering through trials, I don't know about you, but I want out. I want to be delivered. I want to be saved out of my trials. But the believers that Peter is talking to, and quite often with us, are not going to be delivered out of our trials. They are not going to be delivered out of their trials. Actually, it's going to get worse for them. And so for these believers, as they were watching their lives on earth collapse, Peter desired to even more have their hope fully set on the grace that was to come in Christ Jesus, that grace is the salvation and the deliverance of their souls. And again, when we hear the word salvation, it's really a broad term that describes a lot of what God has done on our behalf as He has delivered us from sin. And there's basically three aspects to your salvation, of our salvation. The first aspect of salvation uh, from God is the deliverance from the penalty of sin which is death and eternal separation from God. We are delivered from the penalty of sin when we believe upon Jesus Christ as our Savior. And this is what we most often think of, hey, I got saved. We've been saved from the penalty of sin and death. But once we are saved, God is not done saving us. He's actually continuing His work through the Holy Spirit So that the moment that we're born again, God does not only save us from the penalty of sin, but He's also saving us from the power of sin in our life. 
And that is what every single person who is a Christian is going through right now. Not only has God saved you, but because of that salvation, He is continually to remove the power from sin from your daily life. And we do that through loving and obeying Jesus. The Holy Spirit is convicting us of our sin. He's convincing us that we're His kids. He's reprogramming our minds. He's waking us up to the fact of who we are now in Christ, this great salvation that we have. And as we read the Word and as the Holy Spirit begins to convict us, our lives begin to change. As the Holy Spirit says, put off this and put on this, we respond in obedience as as godly children, and we're changed into the image of Jesus Christ day by day. That is the saving work that is happening right now in the life of a believer. That's called sanctification, Christianese word, right? And so we're not only saved from the penalty of sin, we're saved from a, the power of sin. The, the save, salvation from the penalty of sin is a one-time event. But God is also... The, the lasting effects of that is happening in our day-to-day life. And lastly, the final aspect of our salvation happens at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we are resurrected and given glorified bodies. And at that point, we will be saved not only from the, the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. How many of you want to be saved from the presence of sin? Amen. And how many of you heard me repeat this before? Yes, I keep repeating it for a reason, because we need to know that God is at work, and not only has he saved you, is he working out a salvation in you, he is going to finish it off. Amen. When is he going to do that? When Jesus calls and shouts for his church, and at that moment, the dead in Christ shall rise, and we'll be transformed with the twinkling of light, we'll be changed. And this body of death that we're dragging around will be done with it. Amen? And that is the end result of our faith, as he's talking about there, the salvation or deliverance of our souls. And this happens at the return of Christ. And so Peter is comforting them in verses 8 and 9. And he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Joy in the fact that you have been saved, you're being saved, and God has a salvation for you. It surpasses all the trials and the circumstances that you were going through. Amen? He says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your what? Souls. Notice he didn't say in verse 9 that they were receiving the end result of their faith, the deliverance from their circumstances. Is that what it says? that God is just going to deliver us from every single circumstance that we face that is adverse in our lives. Is that what he's teaching? No. That's what health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teaches. And people want to hear it. But that's not what he says there. The deliverance is actually of your souls. The salvation is of your souls. That is what... God's main concern for you is, is the salvation of your soul, of mankind. That is so important for us to know when we aren't delivered out of our trials. As we already read, even the trials that we go through serve a purpose to refine our faith. But Jesus said regarding the salvation of our souls in Matthew 10, 20, he said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body, uh, both the soul and the body in hell. 
Our fear is misplaced when we think that we, our primary fear needs to be about the person with the gun or the terrorist or, or what's going to, you know, the plague that's coming. He said that, that's not a properly placed fear. Fear the one who can take the body and soul and cast them into hell. That's Jesus' words, not mine. Right? That's a properly placed fear. The salvation of our souls is, is very important. Mark 8, 34 through 37, Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He had just fed, and he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. And he goes in verse 36, and this is the main point. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Of what value is your soul? It's very important. In God's eyes, the thing that He wants to redeem is not necessarily your circumstances. He wants to save your soul. You see, a person can be delivered from circumstances on earth and yet spend eternity in hell because you were never saved from the penalty of sin against God. The gospel is that God made a way for mankind, for you, for me, to be delivered from the penalty, the power, and even the presence, ultimately, of sin. And the way is through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Did you know, do you know what the name Jesus means? We say it a lot. But if you go back, it is Hebrew, it's Joshua, basically Yeshua, and it means Jehovah is salvation. The eternal one, the eternal name of God, Jehovah is salvation. His name points and says that God is salvation. That's what, he, that's what Jesus' name means. God saves. John 3.16, we know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believe upon him, shall not what? Shall not perish. What's he talking about? But have eternal life. He's not talking about temporary death. He's talking about eternal death, which is separation from God, your soul. Peter in Acts chapter 4, 11 through 12 said, Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Won't explain that, but the next verse 12 says, salvation is found in no one else, referring to Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus alone saves. He's it. He saves the soul. And Peter wanted his readers to know that although they were not delivered from their circumstances, they had something more of more infinite value that their souls had been delivered. That no matter what was going on in their life, that God had them. The salvation they had was so great and so precious and of such immense value that it should cause joy to sweep over their lives, that it should cause their eyes to be focused on the hope and the grace that is to be revealed.
that they had received this deliverance. The, and, and, and Peter tells them in that first chapter, they were chosen. They had received great mercy. They were born again. They, had, they were a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. They had an inheritance that could never perish, spoil, or fade. They were being kept and shielded by God's power until that final deliverance at Christ's return. And at the same, in the same for us who believe in Christ, who have lost our lives in Christ, who have given up our lives, what a great salvation we have. And even the trials that we face are even allowed by God for our benefit, that our faith is refined, and these trials cause us to trust even more fervently in the hope of salvation. The pain in our lives causes us to look up and trust in God even more. Isn't that amazing for those who are in Christ Jesus? So Peter is saying this salvation is a great salvation. You have a great salvation. This world will end, but you will go on forever and ever in the presence of your God being delivered from this present, the presence of sin and the devil. And this is evident because you are going through joys, through tribulations and all these things, and yet you still love God. You still trust Him. You still call out to Him. You're His. He is and He will save your souls. And now Peter in verse 12, he is magnifying for them this salvation process. And to further show them how important their salvation is, he points to to, to the major influences as a, as a Jew in their lives, which would be the prophets, the apostles, the Holy Spirit, and the angels. And he, and he just points to them. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace, this is verse 10, that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. You see how rich all this is? I mean, pretty good for a fisherman. Peter just blows me away. You could mine this thing forever and just not come to the end of it. And so he says there, he says, man, look at all this great, look at your salvation. It's so huge what God has done for you. And by the way, it's not detached. It came through the prophets. The prophets were the Old Testament spokesmen for God. They were the Old Testament spokesmen for God, and they were fascinated with salvation. They studied salvation, the grace to come, as the Spirit of Christ which was in them. Now, that even is a huge, giant subject. So the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, allowing them to prophesy that the Messiah would come, that He would come and He would suffer. That's what it's saying. Yeah, God is mysterious. And so... The Spirit of Christ was in them, pointing to and predicting the sufferings of the Messiah. Thousand years before this happened and beyond, from Genesis, as early as, uh, you know, Genesis 1.16 or whatever it is, or Genesis 3.16, where it says, you know, you shall strike his heel and he shall crush your head, or, you know, just those little images of the sufferings that would come. And so they began, these prophets, to search intently with the greatest care, verse 10 says, to find out when and under what circumstances the means of this salvation would come. Again, Peter calls God's work of redemption the grace to come. 
they are looking at this salvation. They're, they're reading that God is going to redeem mankind. And they're going, when is this going to happen? This is amazing. That God is going to send a Messiah who is going to redeem us from our sin. He's going to save us. And He's going to suffer. And He identifies that grace to come as the sufferings of the Messiah. It was the means in which God would, would redeem mankind. And the prophets spoke of and they pointed to and they predicted the salvation. And they wondered when and under what circumstances it would come about. And Peter tells his readers in verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. The Spirit gave them understanding that their prophecies would be fulfilled at a later time. It wasn't for them in their day, in their time. It was for a future time, a future event, and they understood that. It wouldn't happen. They weren't serving themselves when they were saying these prophecies. He says to the, to, Peter says to those readers, it was for you. These things that were said a thousand years before, 750 years before, 1,500 years before, 2,000 years before, it was all for you. Hebrews 11.39 speaks of those Old Testament saints. It says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. They saw the promises afar off and they believed. And that's the difference between Old Testament believers and who we are now. The Old Testament look forward to the promise. We look back to Jesus Christ. He is the promise. And we also look forward for the coming salvation, the return of Christ. But one of the most fascinating conversations to me is the one where Jesus, the day of his resurrection, he met up with two disciples. He's on the road to Emmaus. Does everybody remember that? It's the day that he's resurrected from the dead. These guys are leaving the city, and they are bummed out. And he goes, Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize him. They're walking to Emmaus. And Jesus says, hey, what's going on? And they start to explain. They said, where have you been? I mean... You'd have to be an alien not to know what's going on around here. And they start explaining about Jesus, and they said, oh, and then, by the way, he, I guess, apparently the women saw him, but we don't trust women. And so the guys went there, and uh, yeah, exactly. And then Jesus, this is Jesus' response to their, what they're saying. He said to them, how foolish you are, and slow to believe. Believe the ladies. <laughs> they were there first. First witnesses. I love that about the Lord. First shall be last, last shall be first. I love that. How foolish you are and slow to believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. It's all been in the book. They all testified it. They all spoke to it. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophecy, explained to them what was said in, this, in the Scriptures concerning himself. That's the Bible study I want to be at. That's the conversation I, I want to hear. I want to hear Jesus explain what he inspired the prophets to speak and, and just going through the beginning. And so when you look at the Old Testament, when you're reading through the Old Testament, how many of you go, oh, man, this is boring? Yeah, John thinks the Old Testament is boring. Guilty. <laughs> Put Jesus in the middle of it. Put Jesus in the middle of it. And as you start reading about Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, being sold for silver, being thrown into a pit, being pulled out of the pit, being put into second in charge of all the things, uh, the, just the, the, like when he was in jail, when he was in prison, he had two guys. One guy was a 
a, uh, a wine bearer, and the other guy was what? He was a bread maker. And you got the wine and the bread, and one died three days later, and one was restored back to his position. And so you, you just see all through the Old Testament scriptures, just it's peppered with the sufferings and the pictures, uh, both hidden and revealed, of Christ, what he would do. All the scriptures point to Christ, and he points these things out in Luke 24. And here, Jesus in the flesh, he's given them that personal commentary on what the Spirit told the prophets long ago. Fascinating. And so the prophets, they anticipated the suffering. They studied it. They wondered when it would come about. But Peter says, they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, the prophets looked into this, looked forward to this great salvation. They spoke of it, pointed to it, proclaimed it. And then Peter says to his audience that, what was prophesied has now been told to you by the apostles, of whom, Jesus, uh, of whom uh, Peter was one. Peter personally witnessed those prophecies fulfilled. He saw Jesus Christ on a cross. He saw the hands nailed. He saw the feet. He saw the blood. He saw the beatings. He saw the suffering. He saw him being betrayed in the courtyard. He saw the rejection. He saw it all. He saw the empty tomb. He saw Jesus speak to him in person after the resurrection. He witnessed all of those things. And it wasn't just Peter. It was them and 500 others, by the way. Peter saw it. He was a witness of it. And so Peter was a witness. Not only was he a witness of it, it says that the Holy Spirit came and empowered him to witness. And that's what we have in, in, at, the, at the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came and empowered them. Acts 1.8, stay in Jerusalem and you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit came so that they would be empowered to witness because Peter was powerless to witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ apart from the infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit in his life. And so what happened in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit fell upon the church and the church was born. <laughs> and now we, when we come to Christ, we are infilled and dwelled with the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of that resurrection. What's the witness that we have? Our changed lives. The power of Christ in and through you. That's the greatest witness we have to the world. And so the Holy Spirit fell from heaven, bearing, uh, bringing the message of the gospel to you, Peter says, so that you would be saved. All those years of waiting, all the prophecies, all wondering about how and when and what manner God would bring salvation. The Messiah came. He died. He rose again. The Holy Spirit filled the apostles to go and tell the world and all the prophets and, and for, and of all that was foretold and came to pass. And God made the way through Jesus. And Peter said that this salvation of the gospel is now preached to you. And that's true for us today. That has not changed. The gospel came to you in this room, here in Walla Walla. I don't know how many miles away from Jerusalem that is and how many years, right? 2,000 years and a lot of miles. The gospel fulfilled 2,000 years ago 
as the Son of God died on a Roman cross for our sins. The message was preached by the apostles. People believed and were saved, and the message of grace has come to you through the ages by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would be saved from your sin, that I would be saved from my sin, that we would be saved from sin, penalty, which is death and eternal separation from God. And this is the gospel of grace. You don't earn it. (laughs) It's freely given. God sought you out. You didn't seek him out. He made the way. He paid the price. He gave his son that you would have eternal life through faith in him. Through faith in Jesus, whose name means God saved. And so the prophets were fascinated with salvation. The apostles proclaimed it. The Holy Spirit inspired it and just to magnify how great the salvation is in Peter's mind and in the, his reader's mind, he says, even the angels long to look into these things. And so he just throws out that verse. Even the angels long to look into those things. What in the world does that mean? I don't know. I do, I, you know, so you, you just Greek it to death. You go in there and you figure out what in the world he's talking about. Hebrews 1.14, by the way, it tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Isn't that strange? That angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Who's that? Those are believers. Angels are sent to minister to you. So do you think angels are present this morning? Absolutely. Absolutely. We know of angels like from Daniel 10, 13, that they oppose demons. We know that they carry messages from God. A lot of other verses, Daniel 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, chapter 12, and many other things they do. But holy angels are spiritual beings that are constantly in the presence and service of God. Constantly. That is what they're, they're all about. And Hebrews tells us that they minister to believers, that those will inherit salvation. And it seems that... As they see God's grace upon us in Christ, they just look upon our salvation and wonder. They're just blown away at what's going on. I mean, think about it. They're holy. They are without sin. They've been there since the beginning of our time. And here we are, sinful, we're broken, we're unholy, we, uh, like, no, we're just dead in the trespasses of sins. We don't really care about God. We care about God when we want something from God. We're just, we just have no, we're just totally unholy, totally broken, totally rebellious. That's the picture, by the way, that the, the Bible paints of us. How many of you like that to describe yourself, you know, <laughs> dating app? I'm unholy, horrible, awesome. You know, it's just like, no. I mean, that's the God's description, right? As in our, in our sinful state. And as they watch God's plan unfold, as they are looking, as these holy beings in the presence of God, day and night, ministering to Him, doing what He uh, wants, um, they see God send His Son to die for us. They just watch that happen. They're part of making sure that that plan goes forward. Uh, they, they, they watch God forgive us. They, they see God adopt us and make us His children so that they will be, so we will be uh, with Him in His holy presence throughout all eternity. They're watching all this unfold. Salvation from an angel's perspective must be fascinating 
to see God's grace and forgiveness poured out on us like that. And, and for them to be participants in ministering to us who are receiving salvation, it says they, they, Peter says they long to look into it. And the word long here, it describes a strong desire that is not easily satisfied. Our salvation isn't a passing interest to them. The word look there means to stretch out one's neck or to bend down low and to inspect it. It's the same word that was used when Peter went into the tomb to, to look at the empty tomb. It wasn't a passing glance. It was he just longing to look into it. He was going, what in the world is this all about? He was fascinated with it. He inspected it. Angels long to look into our salvation, and as they do, I believe it's not like, why did you do that, God? It's like, wow, you are so awesome, and they glorify God even more. Now, up to this point, Peter has been describing for us the greatness of our salvation. He has been stating all these facts about the very aspects of our salvation, the various aspects of our salvation, the fact that we have been chosen by the Father, that we have been set apart through the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ through His blood, that we have grace and peace in abundance with God, and that He has had great mercy upon us, that we have been given new birth, and, as, and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we have eternal inheritance through that new birth. We're children of God. It can't be, it can't spoil or fade or go away. And we're shielded by God's power until the return of Christ. The fact that even trials cannot shake our salvation actually are allowed. Those trials are allowed and used by God to refine our faith. That will actually result in us receiving praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Can you believe that? I mean, all those things God has done for us, that even the difficult things we do as we endure and as we look to God, that they are, those things will result in God praising us and giving us glory and us honor. What's that about? Yes, we will praise and glorify and honor Him. Make no mistake, that's all over the Scriptures. And on top of all that, because the salvation is so great, we've got the prophets and the apostles and the Holy Spirit and all these people are proclaiming it. And with such a marvelous salvation, Peter now shifts from the facts of our, from facts about our salvation to our response. So what do you do? Are you saved or are you not saved? The question for, for you, is Christ your Savior? Yes or no? Based upon what? <laughs> His grace and your faith in Christ. Have you been changed? Have you been born again? Have, do you understand the great mercy that's been put upon you, that's been given to you, all that you have in Christ Jesus? Now, if that's the situation, what is our response to God? What, is, what, is our, what does our life look like now? With all that... God has done for us by grace. What should our response be? Verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be revealed, to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming at the apocalypse. Our response to such a great salvation is to keep our hope on the grace to come. 
And let me tell you, that is the hardest thing for a Christian to do, is to keep our hope on the grace to come. This is where we get tripped up. We receive such a great salvation, but we quickly forget how great, gracious God has been to us, and we find that our hope is fixed on everything but that grace the grace that saved us, and the grace to be bought. And I find that that's probably the state of most Christians, most of us in this room. Yea, we're saved, God, but my hope is, my, my thoughts, my attentions, my affections, they're just everywhere else. Anybody else have that this morning going on? We know we're saved, but we're just kind of like, okay, checkbox. And we dismiss how gracious the grace has been. We lack an understanding of what God really saved us from. Our hope is to be set upon the grace to be brought. Hope in English is, is it really doesn't convey the word hope in Greek. And so when, when Peter speaks of hope, it isn't a weak hope. It isn't like, oh, I hope. It is a certainty. It is a sure hope. It is full confidence in the grace to come. That's what he says. Set your hope fully with full confidence in the grace to come. That's a command. In other words, God saved me by grace, and guess what's headed my way? Grace. When Jesus Christ is revealed, I am expecting His grace. Set your hearts on it. Hope and faith are really similar terms. Both are trusting in God. And, but hope... The hope that Peter is speaking about here can be seen as the Christian's attitude towards the future. Our attitude towards the future. Hope is trusting God for what is to come based upon His promises. Obviously, that has an aspect of faith to it. It is. But hope is trusting in the future promises of God, and that is faith as well. But, and Peter said, fix your hope, our full confidence on the grace to come when Jesus is revealed. And notice the focus of our hope that Peter is directing us towards. Even Peter's not even talking about even the, the event of Jesus Christ coming back. He's not talking about the apocalypse, even though that is the event that happens. That's the word apocalypse, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what that word is, that apocalypse. When Christ is revealed. He's not even saying, fix your eyes on that event. Other places it has that. But Peter's focus is, don't even fix, is not even talking about, about Jesus, fixing your hope on Jesus. Now, you know I love Jesus. But he's saying that fix your hope on the grace. That's what he's saying. Obviously, Jesus is the grace, amen? But he's saying, fix your hope on the grace. That's what he wants them to focus on. Ephesians 2.5 says, It is by grace you have been saved. A few verses later in verse 8, Paul says again, And for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It is a gift from God. 
The salvation we received when we first believed was by grace. It was unearned, undeserved, unmerited when you believed upon Christ. Do you know that? You didn't earn it. There's nothing that you bought. God was just gracious to you. He had compassion on you. He saved you out of His goodness, out of His grace. He is gracious. Before Christ, we were, we were spiritually dead, but He made us alive by grace through faith in Jesus, by His grace. And just as we were saved from the penalty of sin by grace, we will be saved on that day from the presence of sin by grace. Now, we're called to set our hope on the grace to be brought when Jesus returns. And as Christians, our focus is to be on that grace, that undeserved, unmerited grace. If we take our eyes off grace, listen to this, church. If we take our eyes off that grace, when we forget God's grace, we start to act like it. That's, that's the thing. When we take our eyes off God's grace, we start to act like it. Let me explain. This makes me think of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. You guys remember that? The servant is in such debt. He is in overwhelming debt to his master. The master calls him to account. The guy can't pay it. He says, I'm selling you. I'm selling your wife. I'm selling your kids. And all you have, you're going into debtor's prison until you pay me back. The guy falls on his knees and just cries out, have mercy upon me. Please have mercy. There's no way he could pay him back. It says in verse 27, the master took pity on him and cancels his debt and let him go. He received grace, mercy. It was poured out on him. But what did he do with that? Did he live in light of that grace and that mercy towards everyone else around him? What did he do? When someone had a debt, it says that he went out and people who were indebted to him, he went to them and he said, why aren't you paying me back? And then he took them and he threw them in prison. And this is Jesus' point. And when they were thrown in prison, the master heard about it and he called them to account and says, what are you doing? I have had incredible mercy on you. I've been so gracious to you. You've forgotten. You've taken your eyes off that, and you started treating people like this. And this is just one example. And he took them, and he threw them in debtor's prison, and he says, so my Father will do with you if you do not forgive one another from the heart. And lessons on forgiveness. That's the, that's the, the purpose of that passage. However, that is not... When I, I mean, that, when we look at God's grace and His mercy towards us, when we forget about His grace, we start to act like it. You see what I'm saying? We often think, checkbox, I'm saved, whoop de doo I can do whatever I want and act however I want, and now I'm a Christian and all this type of stuff. What does it say in Romans 6, 1? Should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid! It is grace that actually changes our hearts and causes us to want to obey and to be holy and to follow after Him and to conform to, to His will. It's not a license to do whatever we want. It changes us. 
That's our response as Christians. And so there's a, there's a false teaching about the grace of God in the church. It's just going out. Grace means, hey, I'm saved. I'm free to do whatever I want now. Oh, God will forgive me or whatever it is or however we justify it. And it's no. It's like God saved you from incredible torment. Live in light of it. That's what's going on. We've all been there. Our eyes were once fixed upon Christ. His grace captured us. We were so mindful of His mercy. It showed in our attitudes and our affections and our decisions with our time, our talent, and our treasure. But we can forget the great salvation. So Peter says, don't take your hope off the grace to be brought. So set your hope on grace. Well, how do you set your hope on grace? Peter tells us two things quickly. Verse 13 with minds that are alert and fully sober. Two things that are going to help you to have your, your hearts set on grace is to have your minds fully alert and sober. Minds fully alert and sober. The word alert here means to gird up. How many of you have gird up the loins of your mind? I love that one. It's like this guy who has like a bunch of like messed up stuff going on. He's got this belt and he goes, and he cinches it and everything's kind of tidied up. He's not walking around all disheveled. That's what we say. Tighten up your mind. Gird the loins of your mind. What does that mean? He says, don't get entangled, basically. People would walk around in those old days with long robes, and they would, they would take a robe, and they would, have their, they would have a sash or something they would wear on the belts. And when they got ready to travel, they would take their clothes, and they would pull them up and tie those loose ends into that belt so they weren't encumbering them. That's the picture here. Peter's saying you need to prepare yourself by tying up the loose ends of your thinking. We have so many loose ends. Our minds are in so many other places and so many other things. God says, tie them up. Well, how do you tie them up? Put all your loose ends of your life, discipline your thoughts by living according to the word of God. That is the filter in which you view the world. Tie up your mind into what God says. What he says about it, that's what you do. That's how you think about it. You got to do that. Paul uses the same imagery when he's speaking about the, the belt of truth being put around you. He says, gird yourselves with a belt of truth. Same within war. You don't want to fight in a battle with a dress on and things not tied up. Someone's going to grab your dress, pull it over your head, and run you through. <laughs> right? You take, and the enemy can take whatever loose ends we have untied up, and he can take it and use it to his advantage, and he does. And he does it in the area of your thinking and in your mind. And by the way, what you think and what you believe happens in what you do. And so the warfare happens up here. Put your mind in thinking with the Word of God. Untangle yourselves from the world and conduct yourselves righteously. And then that leads us to the second thing, also be fully sober. In the Greek, it's sober in spirit. And the idea is not to become intoxicated, which is to lose control of your thoughts and actions. And, and, and the idea isn't just, just you know, physical drinking. Uh, you know, he, that he's using a spiritual analogy here. 
He's saying don't be intoxicated by the world, its systems, its thinking, its way, its media, its music. I'm not telling you what to listen to, what not listen to. I'm saying don't be intoxicated by it. Don't let it direct how you think and what you do and where you go and how you act and all that type of stuff. Don't be intoxicated by it. When we don't have our minds that are alert and, and sober, then we can't set our hope on Christ. And, and that's what Peter is communicating here. He says, set your hope. And that word set is military. He's not saying it's optional. He's saying, set. Put your minds focused on there. It's not an emotional decision. It is a volitional decision. It's of your will. That's what he's talking about. This isn't a feelings thing. This is a mindset. In other words, I will because you're my hope. We're to set our hope fully upon the grace to be brought. And so if we have those alert and sober minds, our hearts are set on the grace. If we're anticipating and we're hoping and longing for His turn, what kind of impact is that going to have on your life? And we'll get into that next week. You can read ahead. So um, it, this is really difficult for me to teach on this because it's, it's just hard to, to flesh out sometimes, you know? And so let the Holy Spirit speak to you on, on this kind of awkward section. But if I could say just in closing just a little bit here, what I see Peter communicating here is that God's salvation is, is so rich for you. It is so profound. In other words, he sees something that we don't. He knows something that we don't. And yet it's true. He's saying it's so profound that if we understand what a great salvation we have in Christ is, from our redemption from the depths of our unholiness to the riches God lavishes upon us in Christ Jesus in our inheritance, if we comprehend the holiness of God in light of the rebellion of man and the judgment that is coming, if we understood the eternal terror we have been spared from and instead were given eternal inheritance in the presence of, an ev- of, his, of his everlasting love, if we understood that to some degree, to a greater degree, the contrast, what it actually is we were saved from and saved to. We would fix our hope on the grace because grace is all we have. It is our only hope. There's no other way we're making it. His grace is all that stands between us and the terrors of the wrath of God. Why put your hope anywhere else? Why be re-entangled with the world if you were saved out of that? Why re-engage ourselves into thinking like that? See, it moves us towards holiness and obedience, and this is where the road gets narrow, and no one wants to hear it. I don't want to hear about obeying, and I don't want to hear about holiness. I want to hear about how God's going to make my life better. Anyone else? I do too! But this is it. In the last picture I, I had in, in preparing this, as I'm as I'm reading the the scripture, and, as, and the Lord is kind of just paint, is is kind of cl- clarifying this how great a salvation we have, and the salvation is so great because the the punishment is so great too. The picture I get is that we're often like children living under, you know, a parent's loving care and protection, right? 
And we enjoy all the benefits without really understanding all that the parents' love and grace provides for us and protects us from. This world is an evil, harsh world. And just think of little kids and just think of the protection you as parents and the love and grace, and they have no understanding of what it is. If you, it, you know, that's kind of the idea of what God has saved us from, and we're just kind of la-laing around, which is okay because we're cute and little and all that stuff, but he's growing us up to the fact of, whoa, look at the protection that God has done. Look at the provision he has done. Why would I want to go dance in that world? Why would I want to go re-engage in all those things that God is bringing wrath upon? And it's not that we're not in it, but we're not of it. That's the thing. And so he's going to talk about obedience and holiness and all these things and worship. And so our Heavenly Father has provided a great salvation by grace. And Peter's walking the church into that realization. And he's waking us up to the great salvation that we have by grace through Jesus Christ. And so as you go this week, fix your eyes. Fix it. Not emotionally, but fix it. Choose to tie up the loose ends of your thinking. Conform it to Him. Fix your hope on Christ. And go into your week enjoying the grace that He has given you and the grace that you will receive when He shouts. Amen? Lord, we come before you today. We want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your grace. It's a well too deep to fathom. <laughs> we love you so much, Lord. We want to love you more fully. God, teach us how to tighten our thinking. Teach us to be obedient, loving children. Teach us to be holy, unscathed from the world. Help us to be in the world and, and to preach your gospel and to love it and to love you and, and to proclaim you amongst uh, people who are just like us, God. And may your Holy Spirit build your church by grace. And Lord, we can't wait for that day when you bring us home and it's all said and done. But until then, Father, have your way. In the name of Jesus, amen.